If you will, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. My intention is to read from verse 1 through verse 10. As this is one unit, the first four verses dealing with the old covenant high priest, showing you what must be true about him, and the next five verses, all one sentence, showing you how Christ meets and is better than what is required of the old covenant high priest. Verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ who did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this, your word, that your spirit would attend to this word that was written by him through this author, not only for the Hebrew Christians of the first century, but for your church in every age, that you would cause us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, that we would see that your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the better high priest, the one to whom we look, that we would trust in him even more than we have to this point that he would be honored and we would be edified in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last two weeks I said I've been dealing with this passage, Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, really as one unit broken into three sermons. The first sermon covering verses 1 through 4 and really seeing our author in Hebrews lay down what were the requirements in the Old Covenant for a high priest. What were the requirements under the Levitical priesthood for someone to be a high priest. Specifically, most particularly, what were the requirements for the Aaronic priesthood or the office of the high priest? Not just a priest as the Levitical priest, but the high priest. What were his requirements? And I laid those out for you in verses 1 through 4 as we walk through that text and said, here's what the old covenant, the covenant given to Moses and Israel, I'm really in Exodus 19 through 24, um, as it governed them as a temporary nation-state in the land, waiting for the Messiah to come, here's what it said the high priest needed to be. And then last week I pointed you to the fact that in verses 5 through 10, you're really receiving the answer to all of that old covenant high priesthood in Christ. And there's a comparison. He meets all the standards of the old covenant high priest, but he not only meets them, He far exceeds them. He is infinitely better than them. And I I talked about four um, sort of characteristics, uh, commitments of the office. Uh, One being that he is, the high priest needed to be humbly appointed by God himself. This is not something a man pridefully takes to himself. He's humbly appointed by God himself. And not only was the old covenant priest, um, particularly the high priest Aaron, appointed by God himself, but Jesus was appointed by God himself. I said, secondly, that he needs to be a man. To be our representative, he must be a man. Not only was Aaron a man who stood before God on behalf of men, but Jesus is a man who stood before God on behalf of men. But he's a better man 
in a lot of regards, and we're going to look at that. He is the God-man. So what I want to do this morning is look at these last two um, I mentioned last uh, two weeks ago. The high priest must be sympathetic or compassionate, and the high priest must be, uh, for lack of a better word, mediatorial. He must be committed to mediating between God and man. So I want to look at those two characteristics today. I want to look at the fact that Jesus is compassionate, more compassionate than any old covenant high priest can be, and that Jesus is a mediator, uh, more committed to mediation than any Old Testament high, and more capable of mediation than any Old Testament Testament high priest could be. Now, as we look at these two aspects, my desire this morning is, is simply that we meditate on the person and work of Jesus. You might look at this sermon as a meditation. And we're just going to spend time in the text of Scripture meditating on Jesus. Looking at these two characteristics in which Jesus is better than the old covenant high priest and really finding solace in them, finding hope in them. So let's look at the first one today, which would have been the third characteristic. If you were, will, last week, the first two I dealt with were humble appointment by God and human. Humanity needed to be a human to represent us. Today, the first point is the third point overall. You guys follow me on that? Okay. The third characteristic overall, which is that the high priest must be sympathetic or compassionate. We'll look at that first, and then we'll look at the fourth point overall, um, which is that he, he must be a mediator. So let's look at the high priest must be sympathetic or compassionate. To be sympathetic, you hear that word pathos in there? Is in some way to suffer with another It's to share in the suffering of another person. That's what it means to be sympathetic or empathetic. would take on an even stronger nature there, but but you you get the idea. I suffer with you in your suffering. Uh, We get this, for example, as a description of what happens in the body of Christ. We're all members of the same body. So when one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. The analogy coming from the human body. If I stub my toe, in some way the whole body suffers, right? Uh, True of the Christian church. To be sympathetic here is to suffer with you in your suffering. Now that does not mean that I suffer the exact same thing that you suffer. What it means is that human suffering is just that. It's human suffering. Please hear this. Because this has become kind of an oddity in our current sort of therapeutic moment. There is some belief in our excessively individualized therapeutic culture that unless you're suffering exactly the same thing I'm suffering, you can't possibly understand or sympathize with me. That's nonsense. It's nonsense. I can understand and sympathize with you, maybe not in the exact particulars of what you're suffering, but in the fact that I'm a human being who also suffers. So I know what it means to suffer. I know what it means to have the same questions you have. You all know what it means to wrestle with the same things other people wrestle with when they suffer. You know what it means to wonder, where's God when I suffer? Is he good? Why does he feel so far from me? Does he care? Will I get through this? How do I cope with it? Um, Woe is me, no one has ever suffered as badly as I have, which you all know is a lie, but you say it anyway or think it somewhere in there. You know what it's like. We all suffer that way. Human suffering is human suffering. Now, we don't all have the exact same specimen of suffering, if you will, but we all suffer. We're humans. We have to be careful, folks. We have to be careful here because it's something we're doing to ourselves as a people in which we're creating distance between ourselves and the, the rest of the human race, if you will, by saying if your accidental characteristics or experiences are different than mine, then we can't understand each other. See, if you speak a different language than I speak, then somehow we're some different group of people. If you have a different skin color than I have, then somehow we're different. If you're a different sex than I am, if you're a different, um, if you have a different upbringing, you were wealthy or poor or middle class, what, just, just go down the list of things that we might talk about. If you grew up in a, in a broken home versus a home 
that had two parents. We, we tend to start to say, your experience is so different than my experience that we can't possibly understand one another and sympathize for one another. Um, then what we're going to do is we're just going to drive all sorts of wedges between each other where we have all these classes and subgroups that we belong to who essentially war against each other in some way. We see it happening in our culture. Just pay attention. It's happening. It's a huge problem. And what we want to say is uh, these accidental characteristics, they're not substantial to what we are as people. In substance, I'm a human being. In substance, you're a human being. You're an embodied soul. I'm an embodied soul. You're an embodied soul created in the image of God. I'm an embodied soul created in the image of God. You're an embodied soul who has been corrupted and guilty in Adam. I'm an embodied soul who's been corrupted and guilty in Adam. We suffer the way humans suffer. We are all weak, sinful, and corrupt. Whether our suffering is inflicted by the corruption of the fall or by our own choice to sin is immaterial to the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that we are weak and suffering from sin and death. I mean, I I think the grave is like the great democratizing force, isn't it? We all stand over the grave of loved ones realizing that we'll soon be in that box thrown into that hole in the ground as well with the reality that I am in no way different than this person. No matter what I've achieved or how much money I've made or how well I've lived, I face the same grave they face. The old covenant high priest was weak as we are. He shared our affliction. And because he shared our affliction, he could sympathize with us. He could be compassionate with us. To be compassionate is to be with passions, the same passions you have. He shares our suffering with us. Thus he could be tender and gentle and patient with us. The high priest in the old covenant was able to be like, um, to see us like sheep without a shepherd and have compassion upon us. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. That's the old covenant high priest, verses 2 and 3, with, with the ignorant and wayward since he is himself beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. See, the old covenant high priest was himself beset with human weakness in the same way that any fallen man is. Thus, if you remember in Leviticus, the old covenant high priest had to make an offering for his own sins first and then for the people. Now, I want to look at a couple passages in that regard, so keep your hand in Hebrews 5 and look at Leviticus and chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. I I want you to know as we look there, if you're not familiar with your Bibles, it's the third book in the Bible. Genesis is the first book. Exodus is the second book. Leviticus is the third book. Leviticus chapter 16. Um, Really the center of the book of Leviticus and the center of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy is found here in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. I want to look at the description here of the high priest wanting to enter the tabernacle, and specifically the area of the tabernacle being the Holy of Holies, which he could only enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. And in a specific way, the high priest, Aaron and his sons, would enter that area. So look there at chapter 16, Leviticus, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses... After the death of the two sons of Aaron, now this is Nadab and Abihu, and the reason that this is important, significant here, is because they are struck dead in Leviticus 16 in the tabernacle. They're in the tabernacle. They make an offering that the Lord has not required. In other words, they think, if God likes all this, we got some things God will really like in worship. So they wanted to add to it. Um, Let that be a warning to you, incidentally. They wanted to add to it and worship God the way they saw fit, and God struck them dead. Seems harsh, but he did. They're in the tabernacle, and there are their dead bodies. Now, dead bodies in the tabernacle creates a problem, doesn't it? A problem of uncleanness in the tabernacle. And so, 
we get this note that the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now we have a problem that has to be resolved, and it's going to be resolved by the Day of of Atonement. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 2, Tell Aaron, Aaron being appointed the high priest, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. If you remember, there are, there's more than one veil, but there is a veil that keeps the holy place from the holy of holies, or the most holy place. There's a veil there. And it, behind that veil is the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim on it, with the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant, and the Shekinah glory of God um, descends into and fills the holy of holies. And he says, Tell your brother Aaron not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. See, what happens is if Aaron comes into that room or if any other high priest comes into that room, they will be struck dead immediately because God will not tolerate the presence of sinful man. Will not. His justice demands your condemnation for sin. So it says, tell him, don't come in. Verse 3, but in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. See, he can come in this way. You ready? How can Aaron come in? With a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now, do you hear the weakness and sin of Aaron being emphasized here? Aaron may not enter the holy of holies. As the old covenant High priest appointed by God, he may not enter the Holy of Holies without a sacrifice for his own sin being offered first. An atonement for his own sin being offered first. He is weak, and he is weak in a particular way that we're going to make in comparison about here in a moment. He is weak, and he is a sinner. Now, Jesus meets this requirement of weakness of the high priest in one way, and he's better than the old covenant high priest in another way. So he both meets the requirement in one sense and is better than the old covenant high priest in another sense. Look back at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. In the days... Of his flesh, that's during his humanity. Remember, Jesus becomes incarnate. We celebrate that at Christmas. And he is here until his ascension. He resurrects. We celebrate that at Easter. And then he resurrects, um, which is celebrated during the Pentecost season. And ascend, I mean, resurrects before that, but then is ascended during the Pentecost season. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with, no, notice this, with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard, pay attention to this phrase, he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now what I want to note here, and there's, there's a lot of language I want to deal with, but I want to just deal with a few pieces of language here first. I want to note first this phrase, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, now notice this phrase, with loud cries and tears. And then this phrase, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now, I actually think um, that phrase, he's heard because of his reverence, is better translated, he was heard from his fear. Say, heard from his fear, what do you mean? He was heard, i.e., the Father heard him, thereby delivering him from his fear. In other words, the father heard him in the midst of his fear, and the father delivered him from his fear. Now, some will balk at the idea when I say Jesus is offering up loud cries and tears, and then Jesus is afraid and cries out to the father in fear, and the father delivers him from fear. Some will balk at the idea that Jesus would fear wrath from the father. Why would Jesus be afraid of the wrath of God? See, I would contend that it is not the grammar that has driven us to the translation, he was heard because of his reverence. It isn't the grammar of the text there that drives us to that translation. 
it's a theological interpretation that moves scholars away from translating it, he was heard because of his fear or from his fear. He was heard from his fear or delivered from his fear. I, I think the grammar would probably allow either, but it's more appropriate grammatically in that fact that the Greek is usually translated this way, he was delivered from his fear. And I think that despite the protest of some, it's also better theologically to say that. Why do I say that? See, some scholars will say this. It's inappropriate or incongruous with Hebrews 1 through 4, 1, 1 through 4, to argue that Jesus feared the wrath of the Father. Why? Because how can the Son of God, the heir of all things, the creator of the world, the one who shares the substance of the Father, who is the radiance of the glory of God, who is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one whose name is above the angels. How can he be afraid of the wrath of God? Now, I want to argue that if we're asking this about him according to his divinity, then it would be inappropriate to say he's afraid of the wrath of God. However, the Son of God, the one whom we're mentioning there, united himself to true humanity. Thus, the person of Jesus... The God-man, as a truly human person, feared the wrath of the Father. The Father was coming against him in terrifying holiness and justice. The Father was imputing to him the curse of God for our sin. Jesus became the curse. So that it can be said, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. Jesus was exposed to hunger, thirst, loneliness, torturous beatings, betrayal, abandonment by friends, public humiliation, false accusation, grief. Pain, the burden of sin, the penalty of death itself, the curse of God, and the exhaustion of all the hellish wrath of God for all the sins of everyone who would ever believe. Here's the question. If he did not fear that, would he be a man at all? And he would not make a truly sympathetic and compassionate high priest, would he? John Owen commented on how some deny that Jesus feared. It's not a new thing, incidentally. John Owen's writing in the 1600s. Commented this way. To deny that the soul of Christ was engaged in ineffable, like I just can't even speak of it. It's unspeakable. Ineffable conflict with the wrath of God and the curse of the law. That his faith and trust in God were pressed and tried to the utmost by the opposition made unto them by fear, dread, and a terrible apprehension of divine displeasure due to our sins is to renounce the benefit of his passion and turn the, to turn the whole of it into a show. Right? If we deny that he feared in that moment, we just make the whole crucifixion a show. Now Owen goes on to say something akin to the kinds of pictures and ceremonies of the papists. I'm not going to say that, but look, look at the language of verse 8, chapter 5. Although he was a son, and I think that the son, that should be capital S incidentally. I think it's an error in ESV to not capitalize it. But although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now I just want to, I'll deal with the rest of that text, but I just want to point for now uh, point out for now those last three words. I want you to grab hold of those last three words. What he suffered. See, he had loud cries and tears. He was afraid. He suffered. The text is replete with language that allows us to know that Jesus shared our suffering. He really suffered. The dark night of the soul. 
that you know isn't even close to the dark night of the soul that Jesus knew. The dark night of the soul that he experienced from the Garden of Gethsemane through his crucifixion at the cross was a dark night of the soul that is infinitely darker than anything we can fathom. He was weak like we are weak. He suffered like we suffer. He wept like we weep. He was afraid like we are afraid. So he is able to see us and have compassion on us. Thus he is fit to be a high priest. He is infinitely better than the old covenant high priest, though, in another way. You ready? He was not a sinner. He was beset with weakness, but not the kind of weakness that we're beset with, i.e. sin. He was weak, yet without sin. Look at Hebrews 4. Look up there at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He suffered our weakness. He was tempted externally, but he never sinned. So what's the hope in this for us? Keep your hand in Hebrews 5 and look at Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 and verse 26. For it was fit, indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Look at Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, the old covenant high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, that's the old covenant, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He is the son of God who shared our humanity and our weakness but without our sin, he is holy, innocent, undefiled as the high priest. Thus he is an infinitely better high priest. For he is able to sympathize with us perfectly and without sin. I don't know if you hear how good that news is. Not even one high priest in the Old Covenant. Not even one high priest in the Old Covenant. I, you take the most exemplary, most faithful most godly high priest in the Old Covenant, and not even one was ever able to fulfill the temporary and typical, typological office of high priest perfectly. None of them. None of them. Even the best of them were still sinners. Thus, their compassion and their sympathy was always tainted or corrupted by their own sin. You know that, right? Your sympathy and compassion is tainted by your own corruption and sin. Isn't it? Their patience was not the perfect patience of Christ. So I can be sympathetic with you, but I don't have the perfect patience that Christ has. They sometimes became prideful about their own state and thus impatient with the state of others. We can easily find ourselves doing that, can't we? We're patient with people. We're sympathetic with them in their weakened state for a little while, but at some point, we want them to be as strong as us, and our patience runs out. Get it together. I've gotten it together in my life. What's your problem? They sometimes became selfish and self-exalting. Thus, they did not really even try to understand and care deeply about the suffering of others as Christ did. See, their love and grace and mercy toward us was not what Christ's is. They sometimes became self-centered, hateful, and punitive. 
Thus they did not love sacrificially and act graciously and mercifully as Christ did. You know, you fly off the handle with people at times. No matter how much sympathy you've shown, you reach an end pretty quickly because you're a sinner. Christ never did. Their tenderness and gentleness and meekness was never as Christ's. They sometimes became harsh and angry. And thus they did not, and I mean sinfully angry. There's a righteous anger. I'm talking about a sinful anger. And thus they did not restrain their wrath and exercise perfect tenderness and gentleness as Christ did. See, Christ far exceeds them all. They're all types and shadows. He's the antitype, the substance. He is better, infinitely better than anything else. Why would you look to anyone or anything else? That's what the author of Hebrews is asking you. For example, I'm a pastor. Now, I'm not the high priest. I'm not a priest at all. Let's be clear about that. I'm a pastor. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You want a priest, go to him. He's the high priest. He's alive at the right hand of the Father, ever interceding for you. You want a pastor, come to me, and I'll point you to the priest that you need. But I'm not him. You're never to look to me or any of the elders and deacons of this church. You're to look to Christ. We're never encouraged to point you to ourselves. You know that? It's never come to me in some private box somewhere, tell me what your thoughts and feelings and sins are, and then I'll absolve you of your sin. It's always, come to me, and I'll point you away from me to Christ. He'll absolve you of your sins. We're never encouraged, we're really never to encourage you to trust in the church, in her sacraments, in her ministers, in her music, in her buildings. Notice I made a distinction between the church and her buildings, right? In her buildings, in her calendar, or in anything else. We gather together as the church and do whatever God has commanded in worship in order that by those things we might look to our great high priest, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now very closely related to what I've been arguing, and in the same text, we turn to the fourth requirement of the high priest, which Jesus far exceeds. Our second point today, or the fourth requirement, the high priest must be mediatorial. Mediator. He must be committed to mediation. Look at Hebrews 5 and verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men, that's where the high priests are chosen from, just as Jesus was. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed, that is appointed by God, to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And in what way do they act on behalf of men in relation to God? In what way do they mediate? The, The specific task of mediation there is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now look down at verse 3. Because of this, he, that being the high priest, because of his sin, the high priest is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for the sins of the people. So the high priest is to offer up sacrifices for sins. This points us most peculiarly to the Day of Atonement, which I already read from in Leviticus 16. And so I'm going to ask you to keep your hand in Hebrews 5 and look back at Leviticus 16 again. Look back there again, and we're going to go to verse 4. Leviticus 16 and verse 4. If you remember, Aaron was to take the blood of the bull and the goat or the ram for a sin offering and a burnt offering. That's how he was to enter the Holy of Holies. Now look at what it goes on to say. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen, linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats, one for a sin offering and one, for a, one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, 
one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel or the scapegoat. One is going to be um, sacrificed, that's blood being put on the altar on the, in the Holy of Holies, and the other is going to be the scapegoat. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel, or the scapegoat, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, this is what the high priest did annually. I, I want to give you a sense of this. The high priest who has these incredibly ornate garments, these robes to set him apart in purple, symbolizing some kind of royalty, um, with the ephod, with Israel on his shoulders, the tribes of Israel on his shoulders and on his chest. He is to, on the Day of Atonement, uh, that day in which Israel's sins will be atoned for, for that calendar year, if you will, he is to get a bull and a ram, and he is to sacrifice those for his own sins. And he is to change his clothes, if you will, and put on the holy garments, which are linens. Now these linens, the turban, the linen undergarments, and the sash he puts around his waist, make him look like a commoner. Rather than like a royal figure. He looks like one of us. Just a regular guy. Ties those around him. Set apart in the sense that they're holy. But common. In the sense that they're, they're not these royal robes. He puts those on. And he's actually would walk through the town. And gather the people. Take the goats. And the people would follow him to the tabernacle. At the entrance of the tent of the meeting. He would slaughter after making the sacrifice for his own sins would slaughter one of the goats and go into the Holy of Holies and spread its blood on the mercy seat, saying that your sin has been atoned for. He would take the other goat and he would pray, if you will, over the people and over the head of the goat, transferring their sin symbolically to this goat. And then they would take that goat and they would walk it out of the town and the people would watch as their sins walked away until they could see their sins no more. And that's what this high priest would do. But he puts on these garments and he goes through these sacrifices so that he can be consecrated to that task, set apart, so he could offer up these atoning sacrifices. Now, these atoning sacrifices were always pointing forward, pointing forward to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. They were always types pointing forward to him. But the priest did this annually. He was committed to this kind of, by the way as well, daily, weekly, monthly, annual service of offering up gifts and sacrifices culminating in the Day of Atonement. This was all to serve as mediator before God and on behalf of the people. Now what does Jesus, as the great high priest, offer up? This high priest offered up these goats, offered up for his own sin, bulls, etc., right? What does Jesus offer up as mediator before God on behalf of his people? When the high priest wanted to be consecrated to his service, set apart for this holy sacred duty, he offered up a bull and a ram, didn't he? Put on the holy garments. What does Jesus offer up to be consecrated for service? His whole life of obedience. That's what he offers up. His obedience even to the point of death on a cross. Do you hear that distinction? The high priest under Aaron offers up a bull and a ram so that his own sins can be atoned for. Jesus offers up his own obedient life. That's what consecrates him to the office. His offering was both passive and active. So let me deal with active obedience first. The active obedience of Christ. What is active obedience? When I say his offering of his own life obediently was active, what do I mean? The active obedience of Christ is the doctrine that Christ offered up his obedience to God's law in all things as our federal head. Uh, it's another way of saying as our representative. The president is the federal head of, of our, if you will, of our government. Follow? He represents us so that if, if Congress and the president together in our system declare war, we are at war. Adam was the federal head for all man. So when he sinned, in Adam's sin or fall, sin we all, right? Christ is another federal head, the second Adam. And he was obedient to God's law in all things, 
even in the Father's decree that he should atone for the sins of his people. It's what we call his active obedience. He kept the whole law as our federal head without stain or error or reservation. That's why he goes into John the Baptist and says, I need to be baptized. And John the Baptist says, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. Because God has declared and decreed that his people ought to be baptized. I am the head of the federal representative of his people. And so I must be baptized. He is holy, innocent, and undefiled in his perfect obedience to the Father from his conception to his death at the cross. That's what Philippians 2 will say to us, right? Obedient to the point of death on the cross. Now look at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. Although he was a son. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And notice how Hebrews argues he learned obedience through what he suffered. In other words, in all his suffering, his suffering from conception, you say, how does he suffer conception? Because when God takes humanity to himself, his suffering has begun. Understand? His humiliation has begun. From his conception to his death, he learned obedience. Now, what do we mean by learning obedience? That one kind of throws us. I want to speak of learning obedience in two ways. Now, Owen provides three ways. John Owen does, but I want to just use two of them. We can talk about learning obedience formally. Here's what I mean when I say learning obedience formally. That's to learn something we did not know. See, we're being instructed in something of which we would not be aware apart from such instruction. Right? So we can say that we learn what is true and good and beautiful through instruction. Yet Christ does not need to learn obedience in these ways. He is the wisdom of God. He is the word of God. He naturally knows obedience in this sense. There's not anything he does not know in that sense. Second kind of learning obedience is the learning of obedience experientially. What do I mean by that? That's learning obedience through actually practicing obedience. Owen compares this to knowing what meat is. You can know what meat is without ever actually tasting the savor of meat. So you really don't know meat, what meat is, learning what it is, until you taste the savor of it in that sense, right? You don't know it experientially. The Son of God has always known what obedience is because he's God. However, it's only as the incarnate Son, the God-man, that he can learn obedience by the actual experience of being obedient. That's what he's getting at. Please hear me, the Son was not eternally obeying, nor eternally submitting to the Father. The text here is actually ruling it out to get all together. It is only as incarnate man that the Son of God learns obedience through the experience of being obedient. It is only as man that the Son of God learned obedience even to the point of death. It is only as man that the Son of God could taste the suffering of death. And in this way... Through his perfect obedience, the Son was consecrated to be our high priest. Look at verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being made perfect. This notion of being made perfect is a manner of speaking about consecration. To be consecrated is to be formally dedicated to some sacred purpose or service. Now that doesn't mean, when he says he was made perfect, it doesn't mean he lacked moral perfection. Like, he wasn't morally perfect, and then he became morally perfect. It's not what it's talking about. It's telling you how he was consecrated to his office as high priest, as the captain or source of our salvation. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. This comes up there again. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting... was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, the source, the captain of our salvation, perfect through suffering. This is to consecrate him. This is speaking about his obedience to the point of death by which he was consecrated to his priestly offering of the 
of the atoning sacrifice. Now you might wonder, how do I know that? Am I just liking that idea better than the idea that he lacked some moral perfection and he was made perfect? And so I just like the idea of consecration better. It fits better with my theology, so I'm just going to cram it on into this text, right, and make it fit. That's not, that's not how I know it. I, I know it because of the comparison being made here. Look at verse 3 of chapter 5. Because of this, the high priest, because of his weakness, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. See, the old covenant high priest had to sacrifice for his own sins before he could offer an atoning sacrifice for the sins of others, as we saw in Leviticus 16. The old covenant high priest had to put on his priestly garments and bring a bull and a ram to offer for himself in in order to enter the Holy of Holies and make an atoning sacrifice for the people. This is how the old covenant high priest was consecrated to his priestly duty. And Jesus is being compared to the old covenant high priest. He's being compared to Aaron. We know that because look at verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said. So he's being compared to Aaron. Now, I say that because I'm going to take you on a journey, one more text with Aaron's priesthood and his consecration. Look at Exodus 29. Keep your hand in Hebrews 5 and look at Exodus 29. Second book of the Old Testament. Look at verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to consecrate them, to consecrate the priests, the high priests, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of, the, bull of the herd and two rams without blemish. Drop down to verse 8. Then you shall bring his sons, that's Aaron's sons, and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs, theirs by a statute forever. This, or excuse me, thus you shall ordain, or um, the word there is consecrate, Aaron and his sons. In the ESV, it's ordination or ordain. In the King James Version, it's consecration. In the Septuagint, which is, or the LXX, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles used, it's the same exact Greek word that we see in the same exact context in Hebrews 5 and in Hebrews 2. So Jesus is consecrated to his office by his own holy obedience. Look at verse 22. Tw- uh, yeah, 22, 21. We'll start there. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall take also from the fat of the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh for it is a ram of consecration." Look down at verse 29. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and consecrated in them. See, the high priest is consecrated for his office that he might bring atoning sacrifices. So Jesus is consecrated to his own office, but not by sacrifices. He's consecrated by his own holy obedience. No sacrifice had to be offered to make Jesus consecrated to the office. He was consecrated by his own holy obedience. He was perfectly obedient, holy, and in this way he was qualified to offer atoning sacrifices for sins. The old covenant priest had to be consecrated by the offerings of atonement for himself. Jesus did not, for his life was consecrated through his perfect obedience. So Christ's active obedience, please hear me on this, because there's a whole group of Protestants now denying the active obedience of Christ. It is a significant problem in denial of the gospel in the evangelical church. Christ's active obedience is the basis of his consecration to be our high priest. If we deny that, We deny the foundation upon which he is consecrated to be our high priest. And if we deny that, 
then we deny that when we trust in his, him, his active obedience, is, his law-keeping life, is credited to our account. You see the massive problems denying that? N.T. Wright, major scholar, denies that. Lots of guys following after him. When we trust in him and his act of obedience, his law-keeping life is credited to our account. Now, let's look at his passive obedience. This is long, sorry. But let's look at his passive obedience, and I'll try to do it quickly. When we speak of Jesus' passive obedience, we mean his whole course of suffering as it culminates at the cross in a sacrificial death. We talk about passive obedience, we're talking about his suffering. He was born in the likeness of sinful men. He walked in a sin-cursed world. He suffered as we suffer without sin. He suffered to the point of death on the cross. He suffered the wrath of God against us, our sins in our place. He suffered the curse of the law we violated. Look again at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard or delivered because, uh, or from his fear, really. Notice that in his humanity, in the days of his flesh as the God-man, he was obedient to the point of death. The high priest made an offer, if you look at verse 1, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So too, Jesus, as our high priest, makes an offering. What does he offer up, though? What does he offer up? Look there at verse 7. Jesus offered up, see that language? In comparison with the old covenant high priest. Jesus offered up, not animal sacrifices, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. What's this speaking to? It's speaking of Jesus' atoning sacrifice of himself, his work on the cross. I think it's also speaking to his struggle in Gethsemane. Now, now just to make that clear, uh, look at Matthew 26, and we'll look at Matthew 27. Matthew 26 Matthew 26 and verse 36, Jesus is in Gethsemane, last night of his life, and it says, verse 36, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, he doesn't want to drink the cup of God's wrath against our sins. He's going to, but his soul is sorrowful even to death. So we're talking about the loud cries and tears. Look at Matthew 27. Just turn it over a page or two. And verse 45 Now from the sixth hour, that's noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, 3 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, here's Jesus crying out, sorrowful even to death. Before the Father. Here Jesus is singing Psalm 22. Now I, want, I just want you to hear that. You don't have to turn there. But listen to what he's singing in Psalm 22. The Psalm of David, but he's singing it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. That's what you hear coming from Jesus as he's forsaken and abandoned and is experiencing the wrath of God and he's crying out with loud cries and tears as he is in fear under the wrath of God. Oh God, I cry by day and you do not answer and by night but I find no rest. Yet, listen, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted And you delivered them. They cried to you and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. You see, Jesus is crying out in our place as he suffers the wrath of God for us. Yet even in his cry, 
he is trusting in the Father, even in his darkest hour, the hour in which he is, as the incarnate Christ, suffering the abandonment of the Father, the curse of the law, the death which is owed for sin. He sang of this horrific suffering with trust in the Father, didn't he? And even as he cries, he turns to the Father and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Trusting him even then. Thus, Jesus Christ is the better high priest. He is the high priest who is consecrated by his own obedience to offer his own life for us. In our place, condemned he stood. And only Jesus could be worthy to make this sort of offering. He is the only man who perfectly kept the law and thus was consecrated by his own obedience. And he is the only man who could maintain that obedient trust in the Father as he experienced the full force of God's hellish wrath against our sin. And this man, the Son of God, the incarnate Christ, this man, we're told in Hebrews 5, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Look, now, you might be surprised that the text doesn't say he became the source of salvation to all who believe in him. What do you mean, all who obey him? Not all who believe in him? Is this saying that faith and obedience are the exact same thing? No. No, it's speaking of what Paul calls the obedience of faith. Faith is not obedience, but faith does show itself in obedience. Thus, you can read a passage like Hebrews 11 and verse 8 where it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed. Faith in Christ issues forth in the fruit of obedience. The Holy Spirit, who gives the gift of faith in Christ, also gives new birth changes your heart so that you want to keep the law. In other words, the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ transforms you more and more into the image of Christ. He was obedient, thus those who look to him are obedient. He is the Savior of all who trust in him, and those who trust in him are repentant of their sins, and they bear the good fruit of obedience in keeping with repentance. Now, here's the question. Do you know him? Do you know him? Are you trusting in him? I don't, I don't mean, do you think highly of him? Great, but so what? I don't mean, do you believe all this is true intellectually? Satan believes it's all true intellectually. So what? I mean, have you received him and rested upon him? Has this trust been accompanied by your repenting of your sins? Has your repentance borne fruit in keeping with repentance? In other words, have you been born again so that you want to turn away from your sin, look to Christ, and be obedient to his law? Is the law your delight? Because, listen, because Christ, the lawgiver, is your delight. If not, what's the remedy? Let me tell you what the remedy is not. It's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get your act together. The remedy is, at this point, the same as what I said before. Look to Christ and be saved. Listen, when we trust in him, we can know that Christ has taken our sin and condemnation upon himself and he's paid for it all. Every last bit without any remainder. Further, we have been credited with his perfect righteousness, his law-keeping life in which he obeyed all of God's law without any sin. That is the glorious exchange. This is the good news. That's the good news, Sovereign Grace. I guess all I can end with is to say this. Sovereign Grace, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to behold your high priest, Jesus Christ our Lord. Be thankful. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would trust your son 
our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we would know that he is the great high priest. That he was qualified to that by his own perfect obedience, set apart, consecrated to that office. That he offered up himself. as the atonement for our sins. That he's able to sympathize with us, to have compassion with us because he suffered as we suffer. That he's able to do so without any sin. So he's more trustworthy than any other. We pray that we would look to him and trust him. That we'd give thanks for him. That we would be in awe of him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.